When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Peak Northwest, an outdoors and travel podcast by The Oregonian and Oregon Live, dedicated to the adventure and exploration of our beautiful Pacific Northwest. I'm Jamie Hale. And I'm Vicki Connor. Together, we take you to some of the most beautiful and interesting destinations in our region, discussing where to go, what to do, and places to see. And today, we're celebrating a very special anniversary the 100th anniversary of Oregon State Parks. That's right, Vicki. This September will be the 100th birthday of Oregon's very first state park, a moment that launched the sprawling and beautiful statewide park system that we all know and love today. And we'll talk a little bit later in the show about that very first state park. But first, I feel like we should take a step back and look at the broader story of our state park system, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, Jamie, you recently recounted this history in your article called How Oregon State Parks Evolved from Picnic Areas into Iconic Natural Landmarks. And it actually seems like a pretty interesting story. It sounds like the park system that we know and that we love today looked very, very different 100 years ago. Yeah, Vic, you know, it's really interesting. So, you know, when 1922, when state parks first began, they were really um, started as auto parks, a place you can drive your car to, where you can stop off and use the bathroom, have a picnic, maybe get a good view in. They really started because people started driving around the state. So the advent of the automobile at the start of the 20th century led to the advent of the highway system. And with that, you needed places for people to stop off and rest. And there you have state parks. Yeah, it seems like it was just a place to, you know, like you said, rest, use the bathroom, uh, have like a little grassy area that's kind of nice. And that was about it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, I mean, this, this also kind of started with this, this first state park in 22, but in 1929, the State Highway Commission, which was in charge of state parks, um, created a new state parks commission and tapped uh, this guy, Samuel H. Boardman, to be in charge of it. And Boardman was basically an old highway guy, but he had this vision for state parks as places of, you know, basically uh, untouched nature where people can kind of go and maybe get a viewpoint or maybe go and picnic in this one little area, um, but largely not do anything else there. So I know today we kind of look at state parks as recreational areas, but originally in the 1920s and 30s and really into the 40s, state parks were just places to kind of dip your toes into nature, but not stay overnight, not do any hiking through it very much at all, just kind of to look at it. 
Right. And uh, his name might ring a bell because if you actually Google Samuel H. Boardman, lots and lots of photos from the state scenic corridor come up on the southern Oregon coast. Really, really beautiful area. But uh, this man, he expanded the state park system quite a bit uh, over time. How exactly did he do that, Jamie? Yeah, well, so as the state was looking for new park sites, they were looking for opportunities basically to, to purchase land. Um, they were accepting donations of land. That's how the first state park um, started. Some families just donated some parcels of land. Um, and they were looking to sort of snatch up anything they could. So, you know, Boardman found um, some old decommissioned lighthouses um, mm. that we now know and love today. He found some military surplus land that um, the U.S. military no longer was using. He really just found land anywhere he could and turned those those parcels into state parks. Now, it should be noted originally, because this was part of the State Highway Commission, state parks had to be uh, next to or close to a major highway. So a lot of the state parks you're seeing from this era are right off the side of the highway. Um, they're typically pretty small because, again, these were not places to go hiking or to go camping. Um, you're just looking at places to pull off the road and look because, again, that was Boardman's whole thing. He was not about camping. He was not about <laughs> hiking. He was not into it at all. And he continued this basically until his retirement in 1950. And what's interesting is almost immediately after he retired, everything changed. <laughs> so Boardman is out in 1950. And two years later, Oregon opens its first pair of state park campgrounds at Silver Falls and Wallowa Lake. And people immediately flocked to them. This is the, the post-World War II era when... You know, we have the five-day work week is now standardized across America. Um, the middle class is sort of burgeoning and growing. People are having weekends and they're having time to go out at vacations. They're looking for places to go and, and things to do. And I think going out to these state parks was a natural thing. So you have a lot of families now starting in like 1950s going out and camping and going out and hiking. And they're really finding all of these state parks that they can go to. So within 10 years of those first two campgrounds, 44 additional campgrounds were developed and constructed around the state. And all of a sudden, state parks was a thing. Yeah. And when I was talking to state parks, a story about this, she said, you know, it, it seems that as the views of how people want to experience nature changes, state parks kind of change along with them. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really interesting about this is people wanted to go outside more so State parks gives them a reason to do so. Yeah. Once Boardman's way of, of looking at nature was out, this new way of looking at nature was in, and state parks pivoted with that. Yeah, it seems like those early days, these were the OG weekend warriors emerging here, <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> and the state parks had to pivot, you know, to those weekend warriors. Mm -hmm. They're getting out there. Uh, and it's it's just, it's crazy to me to imagine a time when state parks did not have campgrounds because today I feel like it's just so hand in hand. Exactly. Exactly. And once you ended up with these campgrounds and trails and recreation areas, you really saw state parks become really just generally beloved. I mean, I think this is one of the institutions in Oregon that pretty much everyone can enjoy. You know, not everyone's outdoorsy, but you know what? There's state parks for that too. Mm -hmm. um, not everyone's into history and there's a lot of state parks for that. So, you know, I, I think once we kind of look into the 60s, the 70s, um, we have the, you know, of course, the, the burgeoning environmental movement. Um, you have, um, like we said, a lot of the weekend warriors. You end up with everyone from hippies to hunters enjoying state parks. And I think that's what's really cool about it. 
Um, so when we kind of get through to this, this kind of this, this original golden era of state parks, it was really something that everybody enjoyed. But of course, it didn't stay that way. In 1980, it kind of begins what, um, but kind of you can kind of describe as sort of the dark the dark era mm. of state parks. Um, so in 1980, um, voters narrowly approved this constitutional amendment in Oregon that shifted all the gas tax money to the common school fund. So the gas tax was what had originally funded state parks. Again, because it's part of the state the state highway commission. Mm-hmm. So that left um, the state park funding to go to the general fund. And this is getting kind of wonky, but the general fund leaves it basically more susceptible to economic fluctuations. So in the early 1980s, there was a big recession. And because the state parks funding had just shifted to that general fund, it all of a sudden was just left hanging. So in the 1980s, um, you see basically stop building new parks. Um, there's this big maintenance backlog that builds up. Parks starts to get a little bit dilapidated. Um, things really started to get tough. In 1989, the state legislator officially created the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department free on its own, not no longer part of the Highway Commission, but it chose not to designate any source of funding for this new department. <laughs> so the new department now finally on its own has no way to make money at all. Um, and at that point, things got really dire. And a lot of state parks talked about shutting down altogether. The state parks director at the time went to the state legislature to plea for some money, some source of funding. Um, and it, it was really contentious back then, as I understand. Um, the anecdotes from those years are really just come in these various shades of desperation. So yeah. you hear about park rangers planing down old highway signs to make picnic tables. Um, Detroit Lake sold Beanie Babies at their gift shop in the 90s and apparently raised $100,000 a year doing that, which is, um, you know, those who did not live through the Beanie Baby era might not understand, (laughs) but that was, um, how was that? That was, I think, a pretty genius move on their part. Um, And some, um, the managers at Fort Stevens apparently talked about considering selling lots for condos, which is insane to think of, but never really got around to it. So they were just looking for any source of funding at all. One of those sources of uh, funding that did come to fruition was the creation of yurts and cabins in state parks. Mm-hmm. So before the campgrounds were campgrounds, you have your tent sites, your RV sites, that sort of thing. Um, but that meant that people weren't really camping in the wintertime because it sucks to camp in the wintertime <laughs> here in the Northwest. So some uh, managers on the coast said, hey, why don't we make these yurts, um, put, make, make a sort of indoor option for people to stay in our parks over the winter. Um, and see how that works. And it took off. Um, I mean, obviously you can see yurts and now cabins in state parks everywhere, but that was a really novel idea at the time. No one had really done that in a state park system. The idea of yurts in general were, these were Mongolian structures. Um, this wasn't something that people were really doing, but you look today in glamping, camping in yurts or or canvas tents or cabins is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And this was really, you know, one of the things that I don't know if it started exactly in Oregon State Parks, but they were at the forefront of this trend. Um, And it took sort of that act of desperation to really make that happen. So, you know, even while times were tough, Oregon State Parks was still alive and kicking and trying to find new ways to make it work. And finally, in 1998, they got some relief after voters overwhelmingly approved another ballot initiative that sent a portion of state lottery funds to parks and beaches, which funds now state parks to this day. And so with those lottery funds, where is that money 
being used? I mean, we had that crazy backlog. Was it just like, all right, let's get to work on all these projects that, that we've had? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was it. So once they had the money, it was like, let's get to work. They addressed all of those maintenance issues. They started to build new parks again. Uh, between 2005 and 2018, the, park, the Parks Department created eight new parks around the state, wow. um, including some big ones that we know today. L.L. Stubb Stewart State Park, which is in the foothills of the Coast Range, Cottonwood Canyon, we've talked about a million times here, um, Wedham Lakin State Park in the Wallowa Mountains, which you and I just visited recently. Mm-hmm. Um, there are just a number of parks that they created. It was just getting back to work, just really making the parks, again, a place where people can have a reliably good time, um, where there's not going to be, you know, a busted bathroom um, <laughs> or where they can have an upgraded, you know, uh, cabin or whatever. Um, they really kind of got to it. And it really came at a, at a really perfect time because when we start getting into the 2010s, especially, you really start to see state park visitor numbers just absolutely skyrocket. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we all talk about how crowded state parks are today. And that really kind of started in earnest around 20, 2009, 2010. And I talked to the state parks department about this. They give a few reasons. They say, well, Population has really increased in Oregon, which is true. And, you know, you see people maybe in the recession were looking for um, cheaper alternatives to expensive vacations, which is also true and still remains true to this day to a certain degree. But in my mind, I think something that really affected this like nothing else was Instagram. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is uh, one of the biggest photo sharing social media apps out there. And it started in 2010. So all of a sudden, if you go on Instagram today, you can see just hundreds of accounts sharing pictures every day of all of these beautiful state parks to millions of followers, right? So what we end up having is um, these state parks becoming these places of natural beauty, these iconic landmarks. Um, everyone now knows what Smith Rock looks like. They all know what Peter Iredell shipwreck looks like. Um, they know what Silver Falls looks like. These are not obscure places that you know only if you're in Oregon. People from around the world are coming to state parks now because they they want to go to these beautiful natural destinations. It's not just Crater Lake and it's not just Mount Hood. All of a sudden, it's all of these state parks that have these these this iconic natural landmark status. And we've sort of seen those numbers just really go crazy in the last 10 years to the point where state parks are now looking at, well, gosh, how do we manage this? It's kind of this this happy problem to have. Everyone loves state parks and everyone's coming to see them. Mm-hmm. But how do you manage those crowds in a way that both protects the natural resource and serves the public in the way that they want to enjoy and appreciate state parks? And that's the balance they're trying to strike today. Got it. Got it. And I'm sure, especially in peak 2020, when, you know, peak pandemic times were happening and everyone's like, how can I, what can I do with my extra spare time that I've now found if I'm furloughed or something like that? Um, and how can I keep my distance? And a lot of people turn to getting outdoors. And uh, I don't know about keeping your distance when everyone goes to the same place, but a lot of people found <laughs> going to national parks, state parks as the answer for that. And unfortunately, I know that dealing with a lot of people during that time might have been tricky for state parks. Absolutely. I mean, you heard of um, stories of of state park rangers getting harassed um, over COVID policies and um, just a lot of crowds coming to the same spots all at once. Um, When we get a heat wave, the parks on the coast are slammed, you know, and that's definitely a challenge for rangers. 
Um, and what we saw in 2020, um, as you mentioned, people trying to get away from crowds, the smaller, tiny little parks in the middle of nowhere started seeing this surge in visitors because people were looking to get away from people. Mm-hmm. Where can I go camp that no one's going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those little tiny parks where rangers aren't used to seeing that many people are all of a sudden getting these huge surges in visitors. And that's a challenge too. Um, and I've never gotten the sense from the parks department that they don't want people to go. Right. Yeah. Their whole thing is they want to share these areas with the public. And that's been the, the, the case since the beginning. Since mm-hmm. Boardman was first there, his whole thing was, I want to share these places with the public. They just want them to camp there. Now <laughs> it's about camping and mountain biking and, mat- and rock climbing and mm-hmm. hiking and all of these things. It's just a matter of how do we curb these crowds so that they're not running over the place and loving it to death. That's the phrase, right? Loving it to death. And, you know, a lot of other agencies, the Forest Service, the National Park Service are issuing uh, basically, you know, permits, timed entry permits to limit the number of people that can go into these places, or they're issuing, you know, more expensive parking permits, right? And the State Parks Department is not doing any of those things, which I think is really interesting. They're, they're, I mean, you can still park for free at the vast majority of state parks in Oregon. Um, they don't have any timed entry permits anywhere. And I was talking to um, manager at Smith Rock, and he said, you know, um, that those, those uh, approaches are like band-aids, right? The quick fixes. They don't address the bigger issues here. Mm-hmm. Um, so what like they're doing at Silver Falls, for example, is they're building more parking lots. They're building uh, more campground. They're building, you know, more trailheads. Everyone at, Smith, at Silver Falls goes to the south end of the park where all of those things are now. But they're building all these things the north end of the park now. So they're basically opening more space for those crowds to go. So while you have maybe the same number of people at Smith Rock and it's huge, they're spread out a little bit more. And a lot of what you know I do is tell people about smaller state parks, other places where they maybe have not been to before. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole idea is just spreading these crowds out a little bit more, accepting that there's going to be a lot of people who want to go to state parks, but not trying to have them all go to the same place. Right. And that seems to be what the state parks are is trying to do today um, is just give people opportunity to go to different areas and not all crowd up at the same couple of spots they're used to going to. That's great. Are any other state parks expanding like that? You know, they've, they've been trying. There's this big $50 million um, state park renovation project that they've been working on the last couple of years. Um you know, Smith Rock is trying to build some new trails um, and some work on some new parking in the future. Um, you know, there's a lot of parks on the coast that are trying to uh, expand their campgrounds, but it's a little tricky out there. Uh, I know some residents on the coast um, don't really want a lot of that expansion. Mm-hmm. I think this part of the problem, honestly, is that a lot of these parks were built back in the Boardman era. So they were built by Boardman to not be campgrounds, right? To not be big and expansive. And now when we're wanting to do these things on these places, you're kind of running into the old way of thinking with state parks. So you see this sort of clash of the modern approach with the old approach. Um, and that's that that causes some problems sometimes. Um, so now they're looking at basically, as the manager at Smith Rock told me, we kind of need to invent a whole new way of doing business. We have to really reinvent how we, how we have people at state parks. Um, and that's tricky. But I think it's definitely uh, worthwhile and um, something that we need to look at if we want to continue enjoying these state parks and doing so responsibly. I completely agree. Well, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk more about that very first Oregon State Park that started it all. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, we are back and we are talking about the 100th anniversary of Oregon State Parks. So I guess we got to talk about the very first state park, which is Sarah Helmick State Park. So what exactly was it, Jamie? Yeah, well, so, okay, so this is a, a, a very small, basically picnic area um, just south of Monmouth in the central Willamette Valley. This originally was a place where um, Sarah Helmick uh, herself and her family lived since the 1840s. Um, it was the homestead that they um, they had. And when Sarah Helmick was 98 years old, um, nearing the end of her life, she decided to donate that land, at least part of it, uh, five acres to the State Highway Commission. So Sarah Helmick donated five acres. And over the years, the commission do- just got more donations from neighbors and built it up to 85 acres right there, wow. of which today 15 acres are publicly accessible. So that was kind of the background of Sarah Helmick. And today, it, you know, it's an interesting place to visit um, because you really get that sense of the auto park mm. there, right? Um, there's not a big trail system. There's not these sort of mixed use recreation areas that we're used to seeing at newer state parks. It really is a a large picnic area with a couple of bathrooms and some rough trails that lead just a short way down to the river that runs alongside of it. So, you know, I I went for the first time just a couple of weeks ago and, um, I was really like, what am I going to do there? <laughs> you know, I'm so used to going to a state park and hiking, uh, taking pictures. And so uh, my partner, Sadie, and I um, were going to go down there. And, and she's like, well, let's just let's just do what they used to do there. Let's take a picnic. So we packed up a picnic, um, went on, you know, uh, I think a weekday afternoon, um, which I have the privilege to do for this job. And uh, we're really pretty much the only ones there. There were a few people that kind of came and went doing the same things we went, but it was just sort of a nice spot to have a little picnic lunch. Um, you know, we packed up some fruit and some hummus and bread, um, you know, just a, a quiet little picnic there. And that's, that's kind of what you yeah. do there. Um, we kind of got a picnic table there in the grass, you know, it's this large grassy area with a few dozen picnic tables spread out all over the place, a couple of reservable group picnic areas. Um, and that's about it. Um, you know, so again, it's really a, an interesting contrast. You know, it's not like you're going to Smith Rock and you're, you know, hiking to these incredible views and you're, you know, there's mountain biking trails and rock climbing mm-hmm. areas. Um, and it's not like, you know, even like Stubb Stewart, where you've got these horseback riding trails and disc golf <laughs> and stargazing. It doesn't have any of that. It's just really a grassy picnic area. You know, no offense to people out there in Monmouth, but kind of in the middle of mm-hmm. nowhere, not a spot that a lot of people are going to necessarily drive to. It's less a destination and, and more a place you kind of just stop off if you happen to be in the area. Right. So get out, stretch your legs. It's a humble first state park, you know? Doesn't have any of the big showstoppers. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, was there was there any like signage or anything that was like, this is Oregon's first state park? Or was it just nothing? <laughs> no, nah, not really. <laughs> I yeah. mean, there's... <laughs> They they had held um, a 100-year celebration there earlier this year, I think in June. And there was a, a banner left over that was like celebrating 100 yeah. years. Um, but it's, you know, there's a couple of little um, 
like informational placards mm-hmm. there that have that information that will tell you like this is this is the first state park and here's here's the story behind it. So that's interesting, you know, but you really kind of have to go looking for that information. It's pretty quiet, you know. This is also one of the um at least in 2021 was one of the least visited state parks in Oregon. Oh. Um I think it was like 17th least visited. So this is not a place that gets a lot of attention or foot traffic. It's pretty unheralded for a state park, yeah. I think. Um again because there's there's not there's not a lot there. And that's okay. Um, but it, it is, I think, interesting to me for that contrast um, of what we're used to state parks being now. Got it. So that was the very first Oregon State Park. And Jamie, what is the most recent or the newest Oregon State Park today? Yeah. You know, so I, like I said, between um, those years uh, in the early 2000s and the 2010s, they started building all these state mm-hmm. parks. Um, the most recent one is Sitka Sedge State Natural Area. Um, which is a coastal park. And it happens to be one of my favorite little coastal parks mm-hmm. also. So this is basically on the north side of Cape Kawanda. So if you drive north from Pacific City, um, just the other side of the Cape, uh, there's a little pullout, a little parking lot there at Sitka Sedge. And what it does is it kind of winds through this um, this trail kind of across these wetlands and then goes through a really dense coastal forest. Um, it's a nice spot for mushroom foraging if you're into that or just kind of getting some shade on a warm mm. day. And then um, there's a bunch of trails that pop out into the sand onto the beach there, just on the north side of Cape Kawanda. And you get some nice views of Haystack Rock to the south, that other Haystack Rock, not the Cannon Beach one. Um, you get some beautiful beach there. So you get kind of this combination of beach and forest and wetland that you don't get at a lot of other state parks. And I think that's just, it's really cool. Um, but it opened in 2018. So um, very new, just a few years old. Um, but somewhere that I think people are already kind of starting to discover there on uh, that stretch of the coast. Yeah. Well, I'm interested how, if it has changed uh, the process of um, creating a new state park, uh, you know, what that looked like back when this very first state park and then creating Sitka Sedge. What do you know about it, Jamie? You know, it's interesting when I when I talk to state park managers today about this, it, it seems like the process is very similar to what it was. The department is always looking for land donations or they're looking to um, buy up land that might be adjacent to parks or um, in areas where they um, you know, haven't been able to get parks before. Uh, you know, there's a lot of still privately held land out there um, that folks maybe getting are getting older or it's passed down through generations um, and which might be attractive to state park system. So, you know, if you look at like Cottonwood Canyon, for example, which um, opened just before Sitka mm-hmm. Sedge, um, one of the newer state parks, it was an old ranch um, there in um, central north central Oregon. Mm-hmm. And you can still see some of the old ranch stuff there today. But um, this was land that, you know, the family said, well, you know, we, we don't want to have this anymore. Let's, you know, um, give it or sell it to the state parks department and create this beautiful new park. So it's still sort of this land acquisition game for the state parks department um, trying to find, you know, again, whether it's donated, whether it's purchased new places where they can create these recreation areas. Right. And then from there, once, you know, they acquire this land, is that when, you know, trails are created, uh, either campsites, picnic tables, all that good stuff comes in after that? Exactly. Exactly. And it, it's a question, too, of what do you want the state park yeah. to be? Uh, when you look at L.L. Stubb Stewart State Park, again, one of the newer ones, um, this was an old logging area. So this is old timberlands that they um, had to sort of let grow back. 
Um, so there's a lot of ecological work to be done at some places of getting the land ready, um, doing some rest- restoration work in these natural environments as well, because it's about protecting the environmental resource. And then it's about building trails and what kinds of trails. Um, so LL Stub Steward, it's really kind of that mixed use area. So you see hiking trails um, that are also mountain biking trails that are also horseback riding trails. And you'll see some paved bike trails and you'll see they built some beautiful cabins there at LL Stub Steward. Um, and they used to do a lot of good stargazing there as well. So it's, it's a place where they decided to do a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. When you look at Sitka Sedge, it's basically just walking trails you're going to have out there. It's not a place you can really go mountain biking or do any of that. So it depends on the different area, what, what kind of recreational use you want to have there. And those decisions are all made you know, behind the scenes within the state parks department. Um, but it, it seems like this is really the, this question of what do you want this place to look like? What is, what can the land handle? What is right for this particular, um, this particular place, this particular environment? Um, once they figure that out, then yeah, it's about building it all out. Um, and I think a lot of these parks are continuing to evolve. Cottonwood Canyon um, started with just some campsites, and then they built these really beautiful can- uh, cabins up there. And they built this really beautiful um, sort of public center where people can kind of come and have events um, and do things like that. And they're continuing to expand that area. Uh, so I, I think it's it's not like, you know, once you get the land, you, you make a park and it's over. These are really kind of living places that are continuing to evolve and continuing to change. Uh, as our need changes with them, as we said in the first part of the show, um, and as uh, you know, the, the the parks department gets more funding to to make these kinds of changes that they want. Do we know of any plans for any future state parks on the horizon, or is that just to come <laughs> at some point? I haven't heard of any personally. Uh, it seems like the big push right now is um, Silver Falls. That's kind of the big project they have going on right now. Um, they're putting a lot of money into that Silver Falls development. And um, trying to expand some campgrounds on the coast, um, some new visitor centers at Smith Rock and Akamwa Chung um, State Parks, uh, a lot of projects at existing state parks. So I haven't heard of anything new, but, you know, I, I would not be surprised if there is some uh, more land acquisition going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of um, and they have not announced publicly yet. But um, I definitely think that we're going to see some more state parks in the future. Well, if you are interested in reading the full history that Jamie has provided with us about Oregon State Parks, I will plug your story one more time, Jamie. Head over to heresoregon.com or Oregon Live, and you can read the story and see some cool archival photos as well. <laughs> Definitely some cool photos we pulled from, from our archives there of old cars and old timey uh, outfits out there in nature. It's very cool. But we are going to wrap things up for now. And until next time, folks, you can watch all of our videos on the Oregonians YouTube channel and check out all of our travel and outdoors coverage on OregonLive.com slash travel, as well as HereIsOregon.com. Please leave us a rating or review if you enjoy the show. And if you want to support this podcast and our local journalism, please consider a subscription to Oregon Live. You can find details at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Also, if you're a fan of the show and are interested in potentially sponsoring it, you can get in touch with our marketing people at advertise at oregonian.com. This episode of the show was produced by me, Vicki Connor, alongside Jamie Hale and Andrew Thien. Stay safe and happy travels, everyone. Until next time, we leave you with this 10 seconds of Zen.